KRCL 90.9 FM, HD1, Salt Lake City, Ogden, Provo, 96.7 FM in Park City, and on the web at krcl.org. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives every weeknight at 6 on KRCL. I'm Gavin Dahl filling in tonight for Laura Jones. Just in case you haven't heard my voice before, I'm the new executive director here at the radio station. My family and I moved here from Colorado about six weeks ago. I've spent my whole life in public broadcasting and journalism, including as general manager at KDNK Community Radio in Carbondale and Aspen, Colorado, news director at NPR affiliate KV in Paonia and Montrose, Colorado, and as technical director at the Colorado Channel at the State Capitol in Denver. I got my start in college radio back in the year 2000 at KVRX Austin, student radio at the University of Texas, playing none of the hits all the time. And later, I finished my education at the Evergreen State College in my home state of Washington, where I spent nearly every day at KAOS Olympia. I've worked for national radio programs, including Alternative Radio with David Barsamian, the foremost interviewer of Noam Chomsky among many other great writers and thinkers. And I also spent a few years as president of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, made up of nearly 20 non-commercial radio stations, which KRCL will be joining later this year. Coming up on the second half of the show this evening, we'll tour around the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, hearing stories from grassroots radio reporters in Colorado, Wyoming, and here in Utah. Up first, Utah Nonprofits Association Executive Director Jill Bennett will join me to talk about their annual conference that just wrapped up called Beyond Passion, and to shine some light on two inspiring women leaders who've been recognized with the UNA's 2022 Nonprofit Leader Awards. One of them will be joining me on the show as well, Sonia Martinez-Ortiz, Executive Director at Rape Recovery Center. She brings two decades of experience in grassroots advocacy and nonprofit membership to her work as a licensed clinical social worker and professor. Stay tuned for those conversations. Taking a look at the rallies and resources page on the KRCL website, these are events in our community we think radioactive listeners would like to attend or at least know about. Tonight, the University of Utah College of Humanities and Utah Humanities present author Joy Harjo at Kingsbury Hall from 7 to 9 p.m. She is serving her second term as the 23rd Poet Laureate of the United States. Meanwhile, in Provo tonight at 7, there's a candlelight walk for domestic violence awareness led by The Refuge Utah, starting at the historic courthouse on University Avenue. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. You can find a full list of rallies and resources at krcl.org under the Community Affairs tab. If there's something you think should be on the list, email the info to radioactive at krcl.org. When we come back, you'll meet Sonia Martinez-Ortiz from the nonprofit Rape Recovery Center. But first, here's some new local music from the band Daytime Lover. Their debut album out this year is called I Was Asleep. This tune here is Cut Loose. You heard it on KRCL.
That was Salt Lake City Band Daytime Lover doing Cut Loose from their new album, I Was Asleep. This is Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Gavin Dahl, filling in for Lara Jones. My first guest this evening is Sonia Martinez-Ortiz. Sonia is executive director at the nonprofit Rape Recovery Center. We recorded this conversation earlier this afternoon because right now, tonight, is their ninth annual Blue Tie Gala along with Beta Theta Pi at Salt Lake Country Club. If you're looking for help, you can call Utah's 24-hour sexual violence helpline 1-888-421-1100. That's 1-888-421-1100. Big congratulations to you, Sonia. Just named Outstanding Nonprofit Leader of 2022. Thanks for joining me on KRCL. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So the Utah Nonprofit Association calls you a compassionate, innovative leader in the community. And the more I learn about you, I have to say, the more inspired I become. You were raised here on the West Side. You learned from an early age about the challenges families face. And you have two decades of experience in grassroots advocacy, social work, nonprofit management. I understand you haven't really been in your current leadership role at Rape Recovery Center for very long. And yet here you are gaining recognition for the nonprofit and the survivors you serve. How long has Rape Recovery Center been around and how long have you been in charge? Yeah, so the Rape Recovery Center was founded by a group of volunteers in 1974 as a response to sexual violence and really meeting survivors in hospitals. And they also started a helpline in 1975. And it's just continued to grow and become uh, a resource in the community that uh, folks rely on. We're the only standalone rape crisis center in Utah. And we really dedicate our work to providing advocacy, crisis intervention, and therapy to survivors. And then we have an entire arm that is dedicated to prevention, education, um, and really eliminating sexual assault. Right. Ideally, your job won't have to exist someday. Exactly. We um, really proudly say at the Rape Recovery Center that our jobs are actually to work ourselves out of a job. And... You know, we've been around for almost 50 years, and so unfortunately we haven't realized that goal yet, but we are doing everything in our power to to do so. I started in my role as executive director for the Rape Recovery Center in early 2020. I took the role on before we knew that we were entering into a global pandemic, and so I actually started my career as their ED during the pandemic. And so that has been an interesting and challenging, I would say two and a half years, feels like two and a half decades in COVID years. Um, But I did work with the Rape Recovery Center for about two and a half years prior to that. I did some contract and consult work with them while I was a, a, a professor in the College of Social Work at the University of Utah. And when this position came up, it really was an opportunity to converge all of my experience and interest and really just the work that I've been doing in community. This role allowed me to step into many of the different roles I've already held in one job. Talk about the inspiration you feel when you're working with survivors of rape and sexual assault and what listeners need to know about the work. So survivors of sexual assault have unique stories and every survivor's journey to healing is different. And I was very early on in my career as a social worker, started to engage with folks who had 
these experiences and were survivors of sexual assault. And this was before I understood the prevalence. So one in three women uh, will experience sexual assault in Utah, and that is higher than the national average. And so early on, I started to kind of put the pieces together that this was a really prevalent issue in our community and that it impacts every family. Um, Everybody knows someone who's been assaulted, even if you don't think you do, and everybody knows someone who's assaulted someone. The reason that I'm so passionate and that I feel inspired by survivors is because the weight of the trauma that folks experience and being able to hear the stories and you know, their lives dedicated to not only healing from their trauma, but many survivors are also dedicated to addressing this community issue. And I feel like it is my purpose in life and actually the purpose of all of us to figure out how we can work together to create a world that doesn't have sexual violence in it. I'm also very passionate about social justice and and anti-oppression in general. And we cannot end other types of oppression like racism without addressing violence and and in particular sexual violence. At KRCL, we talk a lot about community connection. So why is community important in your work? In many cases, these are private matters. So where does community play a role? Yeah, so it's, it's two parts. So the first part is the healing process really requires community. So for a survivor that may be a family member, that may be a friend, that might be a whole group, that might be other survivors because it cannot happen in a silo. We, we only heal in community and that's for really anything that we're trying to heal from, but especially sexual violence. The second piece to that is in order to end sexual violence, it requires the entire community to be part of that. And it's also the only way that we can sustain ourselves in doing this very difficult work that has a lot of vicarious trauma. We have to do this work together. I can't end sexual violence alone. The Rape Recovery Center staff even cannot end sexual violence alone. It also seems like there are systemic problems. So even once someone has come to you, they might still not be getting justice. The system might fail them. And one of the things that um, I learned through the Utah Nonprofit Association and their award for you is that you are sometimes a critic of certain structures and powers that be, and certainly not only as a professor, but now in your role as a leader of a nonprofit. That that must also be complicated because you need people to <laughs> work with your survivors to, to get to the next step, and yet you don't want to be silent when something is not working. Exactly. It's, it is complicated, but the way that um, I like to frame it is like it's working in duality, and that means that multiple things can exist at the same time. People, uh, the criminal justice system, they can be working towards addressing sexual violence the best way they know how, and they can also be participating in um, the injustices that happen to survivors. And it's important that we call that out. It's also important for us to remind people that um, certain communities are disproportionately impacted. So trans folks experience sexual assault. One in two trans folks experience sexual assault. One in three women. And the numbers are even more staggering for women of color and for trans and LGBTQ folks of color. And so when you start to think about that, 
it's important when you hold a level of power. So I'm, I consider anybody in a quote unquote leadership position to have to be power conscious and being power conscious means when I have a seat at a table or when I have the microphone, who am I centering? Um, and what am I calling in or calling out in terms of injustice? My guest is Sonia Martinez-Ortiz, Executive Director of Rape Recovery Center, just named Outstanding Nonprofit Leader of 2022 by the Utah Nonprofit Association. I understand you're also a licensed clinical social worker. Does that mean grad school? Correct. Yes, I am an alum of the College of Social Work at the University of Utah, so go Utes, um, and have my MSW, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker as well. And part of that recognition from the Utah Nonprofit Association has to do with the financial stability at your organization. For folks tuned into KRCL right now who can't attend your gala this evening, how would you like our listeners to support this work moving forward? Well, there's many ways that people can get involved and support. Financial support is extremely important to keep the work um, moving along. You can also contact us if you want to volunteer, you want to find out more about our events, follow us on our social. We have a pretty active Instagram and Facebook. And you can log right in to raperecoverycenter.org. We have a donate page and it gives you lots of different options for being able to donate to the cause. And for people who want to learn more about your work, um, can you talk about some of the ways Rape Recovery Center convenes survivors to help each other? Like your small groups, the Peer Advocacy Council? Yeah, so we have a couple of things. We we have groups. We have a, a connections group, which is a drop-in group. It's not as intensive, so that's for folks who, who maybe need a little bit more support. We also offer different types of groups on a rolling basis. So we have had a group called the Color Collective, which is for folks of color. We have had men healing group, art healing group. And so those things rotate throughout the year. And then we have what's called the PAC, Peer Action Council. And so this is actually for teenagers, young people to get involved um, and become peer advocates. And so they can actually go to our website or our social and find out how to get involved with that. You've also got a Healing in Community Forum coming up October 11th at the Glendale Library from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. Who's the intended audience for that event? Is the general public welcome, including those of us who want to be allies in this fight against sexual violence? Yes, the the public. This is open to the public. Really, the purpose of this Healing in Community Forum was we engaged in a needs assessment. Um, we've been working on that over the past 12 months. And we believe deeply that it's important for the community to hold us accountable. So part of what's going to happen is we're going to talk about our findings in the needs assessment. And then we're also going to talk about how we're actually going to use that data to um, improve our services and, you know, consider what the next iteration and vision of the Rape Recovery Center is. And that's really important because oftentimes folks, especially people who have experienced trauma, they're asked to fill out surveys, they're asked to do focus groups, they're asked to talk about their pain, and then they never like really even learn why that information was used or how it was helpful. And so this is meant for them and for anybody who wants to join in the fight to end sexual violence. That's Sonia Martinez-Ortiz, Executive Director of Rape Recovery Center, just named Outstanding Nonprofit Leader of 2022 by the Utah Nonprofit Association. You can learn more about her work at raperecoverycenter.org. And if you or folks you know who are looking for help, need someone to call, 
Utah's 24-hour sexual violence helpline is available, 1-888-421-1100. Thank you so much, Sonia. Thank you for having me. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Subaru Love Promise, a partnership with local nonprofit organizations to support and strengthen our community. Now accepting applications for 2023 nonprofit partnerships. More information on Mark Miller Subaru's Love Promise and application process at markmillersubaru.com. Hi, this is Morgan, KRCL's Membership Manager. Fall Radiothon is October 14th to the 23rd. To make sure we start things out strong, this week only, we're giving all new and upgrading sustainers a $50 gift card from Park City's Egyptian Theater as an extra thank you gift for their support before our fall drive. This offer ends on October 9th, so visit krcl.org now to make a donation. Thanks. This is Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Gavin Dahl, the new general manager here. My next guest is Jill Bennett, CEO of the Utah Nonprofits Association. Thank you so much for taking the time to call in, Jill. It is absolutely my pleasure, Gavin. Thank you for having me. One thing I noticed the first time I attended a UNA event is how much you credit the team around you, even when you're speaking in public. How big is the Utah Nonprofit Association staff these days? Including me, we have a full-time staff of five. And how many member organizations like KRCL do you support? And what does it take to join if someone's not already in the fold? Ah, thank you for asking that, Gavin. We support about 588 nonprofit organizations throughout the state. And that support equips them with advocacy, benefits, access to group health insurance, training programs, and more. And joining UNA is really easy. Anyone or any organization can join. An individual can join a business can join, but our bread and butter and our mission is to support nonprofits. And all they have to do is is fill out the form and, and we welcome them. So we'll talk more about the Nonprofit Leader Awards in a moment, but first, you just hosted your annual conference, Beyond Passion. So any takeaways that you want to share from this year's gathering? I think the most important takeaway from the 2022 Beyond Passion conference is that nonprofits are still here. We're still working hard. We all face some pretty steep headwinds going forward. We've seen an increased demand for our services. We've seen changes in donor behavior. We've seen changes in staffing, as any employer does. But what separates nonprofits from the rest of the community is that we're mission-driven. We have missions that we care about And we have team members that do what it takes. We're all getting a little tired, I think, but I think with a little rest and a little TLC, nonprofits will continue to do the work that matters so much for our communities. Amen, sister. If you're just joining us, this is Radioactive on KRCL. I'm the new station manager, Gavin Dahl, filling in for Laura Jones tonight. My guest on the phone right now is Jill Bennett, who leads the Utah Nonprofit Association. Earlier in the show, I sat down with Sonia Martinez-Ortiz, named 2022 Outstanding Nonprofit Leader by the UNA. Sonia is executive director at Rape Recovery Center. She's also our neighbor here in the Guadalupe neighborhood of Salt Lake City. Meanwhile, Jill, the UNA has named another award winner, if our listeners are not familiar, I'm going to give you the drum roll. Who is the 2022 Emerging Nonprofit Leader? Jackie Larson. Jackie is with Centro Espano, and she has done tremendous work on behalf of that organization. She took charge of an organization 
that was struggling and turned into a powerhouse that helps immigration law, secures financial support for the Latinx community, and has taking care of all the behind-the-scenes things that any organization needs to do. It's interesting timing because both Jackie and Sonia took over their current roles right before the pandemic started. It's really exciting to see women in leadership getting recognized by not only their peers, but the UNA as a whole. Uh, Anything else you want our listeners to know about these awards? Honoring these two women serves as a reminder to all of us about the great work that nonprofits do each and every day because they have staff and leadership like Jackie and Sonia. And support from the community. That's Jill Bennett, CEO of Utah Nonprofits Association. You can learn more at utahnonprofits.org. Thanks again for joining me, Jill, and congrats on a successful conference and uh, getting ready to do the second half of your first year as CEO. Really excited to get to know you a little bit better today. Thank you so much, and welcome to Utah. Stay tuned to KRCL. We've got a lot more Radioactive coming up right after this. KRCL's Music Meets Movies celebrates the season Thursday, October 13th at Bruvy Cinema Pub in Salt Lake with the film Studio 666, a story written by Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters, starring Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters. In this horror comedy gore fest, the Foo Fighters rent a mansion to record their much-anticipated 10th album. Got a couple of ideas I've been working on. I'll lay them on you. Dude, wait, 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 wait. It's called Everlong, and you wrote it about 20 years ago. Unbeknownst to them, the mansion is haunted. This is not just a creepy rock and roll house. It allows spiritual entities to cross into our world. Join KRCL Thursday, October 13th at Bruvies in Salt Lake for Studio 666. Tickets at the door at 6.30, movie at 7.30. More information at krcl.org. Is the album almost done? Yeah, it's killer. This is Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Gavin Dahl. Remember, if you have a smart speaker, you can ask it to play KRCL. Or you can download the KRCL app onto your phone and stream KRCL Community Radio from anywhere. Coming up this evening, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman and Juan Gonzalez at 7 p.m. Thursday night, Psych Out with DJ Mike at 8. Gianni walks the dirty boulevard starting at 10.30. I Don't Sound Like Nobody with Rich at 1 a.m. Illustrated Blues with Jolene at 3 a.m. And every weekday morning at 6, John Florence gets you going with a brand new day. Got a story you'd like to share on the show or an issue you'd like us to cover? Email radioactive at krcl.org. During the second half of tonight's show, we tour around some of the newsrooms that participate in the long-standing Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. KRCL is joining later this year. We'll start in Wyoming. The Supreme Court will be reviewing a case that could overturn landmark legislation that protects indigenous youth. This has prompted civil liberties groups and tribes in Wyoming to get involved. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Kyle Mackey of KHOL Jackson reports. The ACLU of Wyoming is weighing in on a U.S. Supreme Court case that could overturn the Indian Child Welfare Act, a law that protects indigenous children from forced removal from their families and tribes. The court will start reviewing the legislation in November, and the Wyoming ACLU branch recently sent the justices a brief, along with 13 other states, urging them to uphold it. It basically ensures that all efforts are made to maintain those ties and connections between Indian children and their heritage. 
Stephanie Amiette is legal director of the Wyoming ACLU and an enrolled member of the Oglala Lakota Sioux tribe in South Dakota. She says Indigenous children have been disproportionately removed from their families by state welfare agencies. Congress created the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, in 1978 to tackle the problem and to give tribes jurisdiction over their own children. If ICWA is overturned, Amyette says more and more Indigenous youth could lose ties to their culture. Over time, as we see this progress, it will dwindle the um, future existence of Indian tribes within the United States. In addition to the ACLU's efforts, the Eastern Shoshone Tribe of the Wind River Indian Reservation has joined 325 tribes nationwide in urging the Supreme Court to support the law, while the Northern Arapaho Tribe is asking the Wyoming State Legislature to enshrine the same rights in state law. Kyle Mackey, KHL News. A team of scientists from a dozen organizations published a report on September 22nd that maps out the threats to the vast sagebrush ecosystem. The report says that sagebrush is declining at an alarming rate across the West, but as KHOL Jackson's Hannah Mertzbach reports for Rocky Mountain Community Radio, the report shows some good news in Wyoming. Over the last 20 years, an average of 1.3 million acres of sagebrush have been lost or degraded each year. But it showed Wyoming is home to the largest intact sagebrush ecosystem in the region. However, one of the authors, Zach Wurzbach, says there's still room for improvement. He's a program director at the Center for Large Landscape Conservation in Bozeman. And while the picture in Wyoming is very good, you know, Wyoming is a stronghold for sagebrush habitat, you know, the data shows there are some kind of big problem areas, particularly in drier areas like the Bighorn Basin. I think a key message, you know, moving forward for all this is that it's good, but there's still going to be a lot of work that needs to be done to keep it good. Wyoming sagebrush still faces the same threats as in other states, just to a lesser extent. These include wildfires that give way to invasive grasses, expanding conifers, and human development. Another author, Leif Wickman, says climate change is also playing a role. He leads the sagebrush program for the U.S. Geological Survey. If we're only looking at climate change on its own, it's not the driver. But in combination with these other complex threats, it can exacerbate the impacts coming from things like invasive annual grass and fire. Instead of focusing on declining regions, the scientists called for investments in the already thriving sagebrush areas, like Wyoming's. The researchers plan to update their report annually to monitor changes in the ecosystem. You're tuned to Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Gavin Dahl. This evening, we're checking out grassroots reporting from around the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Network. Up next, we head to Colorado, starting out on the front range. After a COVID-related break, Boulder, Colorado has reinstated a requirement that food businesses report what they're doing to comply with the city's zero-waste ordinance. Restaurants, grocery stores, coffee shops, and almost all other businesses involved with food are supposed to be doing their part to reduce waste. As part of KGNU Boulder's Follow the Waste Zero series, Sam Fuqua reports for Rocky Mountain Community Radio on how some businesses are responding. Visitors to Boulder's Pearl Street Pedestrian Mall can find a trio of trash cans along the length of the walkway, one for compost, another for recyclables, and the last for landfill waste. 
It's part of a city effort to minimize trash under what's called the Universal Zero Waste Ordinance. Passed by the city council back in 2015, it has three parts. All property owners, residential and commercial, are required to subscribe to separate collection services for trash, recyclables, and compost. Another part of the ordinance sets zero-waste rules for special events. And finally, the ordinance sets a number of requirements for any business that deals with food. There are close to 400 of those in the city. Business owners are required to provide separated collection systems within their businesses um, for the three separated waste streams, compostable materials, recycling, and trash. Sandy Briggs is a sustainability program manager for the city. She oversees the business compliance with the ordinance. Briggs says businesses are also required to check in with the city every year via an online report. Businesses are required to complete a zero waste reporting form, which can be easily found on the Universal Zero Waste Ordinance website and other places um, that asks them to demonstrate through photos their um, compliant collection systems within their businesses that we can look at and ask a few other general questions about who their waste hauler is and whether they believe that uh, that service is adequate that they're receiving. Over at Ozo Coffee on East Arapahoe, the required bins are just inside the entrance. Ty Harrell is one of the managers for the local company, which has five locations in Boulder County. So we have our recycling bin, which we can take bottles, any paper like newspapers or magazines, cartons such as drink box, uh, juice boxes or milk cartons, you know, your, your, your standard recycling items that I think we're all familiar with. Um, and then we have our compostable bin, which uh, can take any food items, can take our paper and plastic cups that we use for to-go service, and then our landfill bin, which sometimes is a catch-all, unfortunately. Harold says the zero-waste compliance and reporting rules are just two of many requirements businesses have to deal with, but it's part of being serious about sustainability as a company. It can get hairy, I know, like every month with the amount of things that businesses have to keep track of and, and stay on top of. Submitting things like that can be tough. Thankfully, though, for us, you know, we have a great team of people. And being that it's kind of our, our culture as a company is to always be maintaining, you know, our sustainability goals. We do a pretty good job, I think, of, of staying on top of those things. But not all businesses are staying on top of it. Sandy Briggs from the city says that 138 restaurants and grocery stores submitted their zero-waste compliance form by the August 31st reporting deadline. That's a little more than one-third of the 384 food businesses in town. Briggs says there won't be any penalties right away for businesses that didn't file on time. There'll be lots of reminders and there's lots of help and advising. Um, we much prefer to not enforce this and to actually just help people through consulting and advising to, to get it right. So no, there will not be any immediate fees or anything like that. But the zero waste ordinance does say that businesses may receive fines for noncompliance. That would be a last resort. The city partners with Boulder County's PACE program to help businesses move towards zero waste. PACE stands for Partners for a Clean Environment. And the city's zero waste website includes a handbook for businesses and training videos for employees in English and in Spanish. Businesses can also get free signs and compost bags. 
to make things a little easier and reduce the amount of contaminated compost, the city recently dropped the requirement that food businesses have a compost bin for their customers. They must still collect compost from their kitchens and behind the counters, but they only need to put two bins out front for customers, a recycle bin and a landfill bin. The two largest grocery store chains in Boulder, Safeway and King Supers, did not respond to interview requests for this story. But at one of the smallest food markets in town, the focus is on creating less waste up front, so there's less that needs to be recycled or composted. From a storefront on East Walnut, Nude Foods offers groceries and prepared food with almost no packaging. Rachel Irons is one of the co-founders. It's much better to reuse things than to recycle them and use all the energy to break things down and then create another product that's usually of inferior quality. So any product sold at Nude Foods that needs a container is in a glass jar, or customers can bring their own receptacle. In addition to reducing waste, Iron says that approach can head off consumer confusion around what types of packaging can be recycled or composted. There's a lot of wish cycling, as they call it, which is people don't want to feel guilty about throwing things away. So even if they're not sure if it can be recycled or composted, they're like, oh, I'll just throw it in there and someone will figure it out down the line. But they won't. <laughs> you're, you're just making more problems. And it's better to just put it in the trash if you don't know where it's going. Boulder's zero-waste strategic plan sets a target of 85% waste diversion by 2025. Many neighboring cities have also set zero-waste goals. Fort Collins is a bit more ambitious than Boulder's, while Denver is aiming lower with a goal of 70% diversion by 2032. Boulder's current waste diversion is at 53%, a long way to go to get to the 85% goal in three years. For KGNU, I'm Sam Fuqua in Boulder. Many kids in Colorado's child welfare system have little to no information about contraception or safe sex before becoming sexually active. That's according to a new study from CU Boulder that found about one-third of 8th and ninth graders involved in this system had received insufficient information about birth control and fewer than half knew how to access it. KGNU's Alexis Kenyon spoke with Katie Massey-Combs, a research associate at CU's Center for the Study and Prevention of Violence, about the study. First, we were looking at a little bit of more of a broader group than just youth in foster care. So this is youth who have an open child welfare case in one of four Denver metro counties. And we really wanted, you know, there's a decent amount of research now that rates of pregnancy are quite elevated among this group. And I wanted to go a little further um, to see if what level of access kids have to contraception. So when you talk about rates of pregnancy being elevated, that almost seems like an understatement. 50% of girls in the child welfare system get pregnant by the age of 19, which is astronomical compared to the rest of the population where the teen pregnancy rate in Colorado is around 12.5%. So when you started looking at these pregnancy rates in children involved in the child welfare system, you found something that actually seems pretty obvious, but is still alarming. Many of these kids don't know anything about birth control or how to access it. 
I mean, how do most kids learn about contraception and sex? And why isn't this population being included in that? Yeah, that's a great question. So most people learn about sex and contraception and sex ed from the ways that we are typically thinking of talking about of mom and dad, sometimes aunts and uncles, peers, and and certainly school. Uh, And that's true for this group, too. There haven't been a lot of studies on this, so we don't really know. But it seems like they actually get information in very similar ways that other kids do. It's just a lot less or later or too late. You know, it's after they've already had sex many times. Uh, The average age of first sex is around 15. The other thing I think that's really unique about this group, you know, a lot of times there can be uh, a pretty strong narrative in this in the literature about this group and about this topic, that there's a lot of pro-pregnancy attitudes that kids want to build a family and they want to create this loving family that they may have missed. Um, And I think there's some of that going on, but uh, by and large within this group, we've seen this as well, uh, that when you ask kids, do you want to be a parent in the next year? They say no pretty unequivocally. (laughs) Um, I just think it's if there's there's not solid access to contraception, you know, their response to pregnancy is going to shift. You know, their response to, well, okay, I guess this is inevitable and I might as well accept it and be excited about what the pros of it are. Do the kids that you're serving not know that birth control exists or, or what did you find? I don't think it's that they don't know that it exists. I think it's more that there are a lot of myths about what contraception may or may not do for your body. And then there's a really high level of lack of information of like how to go get it and where to go get it. And if it costs, you know, a thousand dollars. And and not only that, but like, do your parents need to know? Does my foster parent need to know? Do you they know, need to know? They don't need to know in Colorado. So a teen can go access contraception without a parental consent in Colorado. That, I feel like when I've worked with caseworkers, was one of the biggest things that you could tell them. (laughs) It is super helpful. And if caseworkers don't know, so the child welfare caseworker doesn't know, you can guarantee, almost guarantee that, that kids don't know. Tell me about in what ways the lack of guidance and education is a disservice. Absolutely. You've got a a group that sees fewer risk from unprotected sex, and we're giving them less information. That's a terrible situation. (laughs) One of the big things about with how kids learn about sex, a new thing today is the internet. So generally speaking, kids are learning a lot about sex through porn. And generally speaking, we hope that they have really healthy relationships around them, also modeling what a dating relationship or, you know, a long-term relationship looks like. And then if you don't have as many trusted adults in your, your life, you may not be getting that reinforcement and that modeling that, that happens. So whose responsibility is it to teach kids in the child welfare system about sex? Yeah, this is the the money question. I think this is the question is really hitting out why I think this has just been dropped for this population. The big thing is everybody's kind of said, this isn't really my domain. I also think that we will not reach these kids in this area without the child welfare system. So I think, you know, the caseworker, 
people saying, hey, look, caseworkers have enough on their plate. You can't put this on their plate too. And my response and my experience has been, it's already on their plate and they don't have any tools. So, you know, providing tools for them is not putting it on their plate. It's already there, but it's giving them some tools to deal with something that's very pressing. Katie Massey-Combs is a research associate at CU Boulder. Katie, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. For KGNU, I'm Alexis Kenyon. Here at Tuna Radioactive on KRCL, we're listening to grassroots reporting from around the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. Next, we shift to the western slope of Colorado. While June is typically the month for Pride celebrations, Delta, Colorado held its first official Pride Festival in late September. As KVNF's Lisa Young reports for Rocky Mountain Community Radio, organizers hope it will be the first of many more celebrations. I said, Happy Pride, Delta! The first annual Delta Pride celebration was filled with anticipation, excitement, and raw emotions. You know, this has been my dream, to be able to um, come out in public and and be me. That's Javier Sainz, Delta native and founder of Delta Pride. Sainz says he's been asked why the Pride event has been so in the face. The way I feel it, if, if you're not in my space, I'm not in your face. So if you want to come and enjoy, absolutely. We welcome you, we'll educate, we'll love you just like we do everybody else. But this is what it's about. It's about loving your neighbor and and doing what's right. The one-day event billed unapologetically relevant began with a recognition of the Ute land, a pride march around numerous vendor tents, two drag performances, and tasty food from a Mexican food truck. Delta Pride has been around for a while. We're now officially a 5013C nonprofit. We do a lot of work with the youth in the area, suicide prevention, outreach, counseling, that sort of thing. We don't offer it ourselves, but we try to get them into resources where they can find it and get it. That's Melissa Bailey, Delta Pride board member. Bailey says in the past year, Delta Pride has been more active including a public recognition of the LGBTQ community and a small parade. Both actions drew pushback from some community members. We want our presence here to be known for those who feel like they are not included anywhere. Um, We are fully inclusive, so anyone, whether they just want education, need to feel welcomed or anything like that, they're welcome. The first annual Pride celebration was supported by a number of local businesses and community organizations, including the Learning Council in Paonia. Executive Director Alicia Michelson says it's important for the LGBTQ community to have a bit of fun. Sometimes in this county there's some really heavy issues, especially around LGBTQ community that um, Learning Council has been confronting and I know a lot of individuals as well. And so this is such a great opportunity for people to just get together, enjoy themselves, celebrate the culture and have a great time. With the first annual Delta Pride Festival under their belt, the organization hopes to continue the tradition of celebrating the colorful, creative, and expressive LGBTQ community in Delta County. For KVNF, I'm Lisa Young. Telluride, Colorado, local and world-renowned mountaineer Hillary Nelson passed away in an avalanche while on an expedition in Nepal. KOTO Telluride's Julia Caulfield shares this tribute to Nelson's life. When you think of giants in the world of mountaineering and adventure, one name inevitably rises to the top. 
Hillary Nelson was the best of her time. We love uh, Hillary for her energy and her motivation. And it was always um, equal to men in, in the mountains and incredibly strong in that sense. That's Conrad Anker, a friend of Nelson and fellow mountaineer. Together they climbed Denali and Everest and took an expedition to Antarctica. But Anker notes it wasn't Nelson's ability to climb or ski the most impressive peaks that sticks out. As a professional, she was always an advocate for women. To, and when she elevated women, she elevated all of us. Nelson passed away on September 26th after getting caught in an avalanche on Mount Mansalu in Nepal. She was 49 years old. Nelson grew up in Seattle, Washington, where she spent her winter skiing Stevens Pass in the Cascades. After graduating from college, she went to Chamonix, France for a winter, which turned into five years, and Nelson began her journey as a world-renowned ski mountaineer. In a career that spanned decades, Nelson became the first descent on dozens of mountains, on more than 40 expeditions in 16 countries. She was the first person to complete a ski descent of Lhotse, the first woman to link Everest and Lhotse in a 24-hour push. She completed a double summit of Denali and was the first person to ski descent Papsura Peak. She was named National Geographic Adventurer of the Year and a North Face athlete, captain of the North Face team. But even with all her accomplishments, speak to those who knew Nelson, and it's her heart that leaves the greatest impact. Anka remembers their expedition on Denali. She was uh, um, with a, a group of younger skiers and snowboarders, and she was great. She was like the, uh, the den mother. She was there making sure that we were fed and that the youngsters were doing their bit and tidying up, and so it was a a cross uh, between a, a wonderful parent and an expedition leader. Suzanne Barraza got to know Nelson through her work with the Mountain Film Festival. She remembers being a little intimidated to start. I've always looked up to Hillary and admired her and thought, you know, she is just the coolest woman ever. And then getting to know her, it was just this other side of her, like she wasn't intimidating at all, you know, because all of her accomplishments, I just thought, wow, she's just kind of untouchable woman, but she was so much the opposite. She was caring and giving and generous with her time and just had the most beautiful, easy laugh and just just a hell of a fun person. Barraza adds that while the world knew Nelson as a trailblazer in mountaineering, she was so much more than that. She just was an incredible community member for Telluride um, incredibly generous with her time, being an amazing mother, an amazing, an incredible partner. She was a just a warm, loving, kind person. And her being a mountaineer was just just a small part of who she really was. Still, it's hard to understate Nelson's importance on the world of mountaineering, especially for women. Here's anchor then Barraza. Hillary's legacy will rest upon empowering women to pursue the mountain dreams and that whether it's uh, working as a ski guide with a helicopter outfit as she did with Helitracks or uh, being the team captain at the North Face or climbing Everest in let's say in a day, her, um, her ability and motivation has touched 
many people and specifically um, really encouraged women to pursue their dreams and know they had the skills and ability to go do it. She was a complete um, role model for women and showing that you can do have these accomplishments and these um, goals, achieve your goals and still be a mother. And often women are held at a different standard for that than men, where men can go off and do all these things and have children. Women are kind of judged to say, oh, no, you, you can't do that. You're, you're a woman. And she really broke that wide open and just showed that it is important for women to have dreams and to, and to follow those dreams. Nelson is survived by her two children, Graydon and Quinn, and her love, Jim. As we wrap up Radioactive on KRCL this evening, I've got one more story from the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. This one's from our partner station KZMU in Moab. Among Utah's wild horses roam a special breed with a history stretching back to Spanish colonialists. They've remained isolated in a mountain range near the Nevada border for hundreds of years, which helped keep their bloodline intact. As the Bureau of Land Management rounds up the herd to protect rangeland health, some say this breed shouldn't be treated like your average mother. Mustang. Reporter Justin Higginbottom has the story. I'm standing outside a corral at the base of the LaSalle Mountains in southeastern Utah. Around here, you'll find plenty of horses, but the animal Naomi Wilson is showing me is special. Um, one of the first things you'd notice is the black-tipped ears and that they're a little curved. This horse is from what's known as the sulfur herd. Her and her husband have three sulfur horses now, and they've become somewhat experts. He's got the dorsal stripe down the back and the zebra stripes on the leg, and that's required for done. But another thing that the sulfurs have, although the stripes are pretty prominent, they also have the highlights, often in the tail. They do look different than the typical horse you find in the West. Their mane is bicolored, black mixed with a stylish blonde. They have one less vertebrae than normal domestic horses, so their backs are shorter. They look somehow more ancient, but their physical features, what horse experts call primitive markings, isn't the only thing that makes this breed so interesting. The sulfur herd is unique for several reasons. One, because of their bloodlines. Two, because of their primitive markings. And lastly, because of their story of how they got there, what I call the creation story. That's Wilson's husband, Stephen Schultz. He's the president of the Canyonlands Backcountry Horsemen. The still wild sulfur herd live on around 265,000 acres of land in a mountain range near the Utah and Nevada border. But as Schultz tells quite cinematically, they're a long way from home. The way they got there is an amazing story. In the, 1500s, the horses come from the Iberian Peninsula, where they roamed for tens of thousands of years, until the Spanish brought some to California in the 1500s as they colonized North America. It wasn't long before the Native Americans took notice of the animal. So in walks a very charismatic historic figure. His name was Wakira. I call him Utah's greatest horse thief. That chief was an important leader of Utah natives. He would later be baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then have a falling out with Mormon settlers, leading to what historians call the Walker War. But before all that, he wanted horses. In 1840, Wakira enlisted his half-brother, a one-legged mountain man named Pegleg Smith, I'm not making this up, and a bunch of Ute warriors to lead a raid to steal horses from the Spanish. By then, they were under the Mexican flag in California. 
According to historical accounts, the native band stole around 3,000 horses. That annoyed the Spanish, and they eventually sent soldiers to recover their stock. They fought a running battle with the horse thieves that ended near the Utah-Nevada border. The Spanish recovered some of their herd, but a group of horses was left unaccounted for in the high desert. That left a group of horses scattered to the four winds right in that location. That was the historic beginning of the sulfur herd. The breed became famous for being fiercely independent and difficult to tame. There was even a cowboy poem written about them called Zebra Dunn. Just as fat and nice as you please. Shorty grabbed the lariat and he roped the zebra dunn. It turned him to the stranger and we waited for the fun. You are listening to musician R.W. Hampton's rendition of that poem. From that point on, the horses basically ran free. The reason they eluded notice and uh, roundup was because they lived in a Pinion juniper choked mountain range between six and nine thousand feet. That was, of course, until the invention of the helicopter. That sound is from a 2020 roundup by the Bureau of Land Management. To protect rangeland, the BLM is trying to bring down the sulfur herd to around 200 horses, maybe a fifth of what their herd once was. The agency rounds up the horses and sends them to facilities where they can be adopted to the public, which is how Schultz and Wilson got their sulfur herd horses. Wilson calls them high dignity. They're very sensitive, very smart, and being high dignity means they don't like being told what to do. People really kind of push horses around and expect them to just do. And with sulfur horses, that does not work. They have to feel like they have a say in the matter. They have a choice. She says she argued for years with her first sulfur before she embraced more natural horsemanship methods. And that changed the whole relationship. While range managers are trying to reduce the number of this breed here, in Europe they're trying to protect them. Genetic tests show Schultz's sulfur horse is a Garano. Only a few hundred of that breed are left, free roaming at a national park in Portugal. Maybe I'm a bit of a romantic at heart, but these horses are a genetic treasure, and here they are in Utah. I mean, in Europe, they're just about extinct, but I guess these guys didn't get the memo. Ron Robidoux has researched the sulfur herd for over 30 years. He even wrote a book on their history, Trail of the Linebacked Horse, an Odyssey. He doesn't agree with how the BLM manages the sulfur herd. These horses are a historical herd. They're not you know, just the common Mustang that were inbred with other horses that ranchers or pioneers or whoever let out or, or lost over the years. He'd like to see the sulfur herd area designated as a wild horse and burrow range, managed to protect the horses. But until then, he says there is a dedicated group of sulfur enthusiasts that help get the word out and arrange adoptions. I think there will be more interest as times go on in the sulfur horses and probably get, you know, more popularity with more publicity and stuff like that. And that's kind of what I've tried to do for about 30 years now. The issue of wild horse management is contentious in the West, and Schultz cautions that he's no expert on rangeland health. But he does agree with Robidoux that the sulfurs should be treated differently than your average Mustang. About the Spanish wars and a fighting on the seas With guns as big as steers and ramrods big as trees When I look at these horses, I see history 
running through their veins with every beat of their heart. I mean, it's a history of 20,000 years of roaming the Iberian continent, of being captured, of put on sailing ship, galleons and guns and white sails and Spanish crosses, and in a hold, a dark hold for three months while they bob at sea, given minimal food and water, only to be turned out on the green pastures of Southern California, where they must have felt like they've gone to horse heaven, to be left on the range, to be stolen by the Native Americans, to be trekked across America on the old Spanish trail, and to where they're at now after 20,000 years of freedom, 300, 400 years worth of captivity. These aren't feral horses. They are horses that were wild by nature. If you can throw a rope like you rode the zebra done, well, you're the man I've looked for since the year of one. Justin Higginbottom, Rocky Mountain Community Radio. This is Radioactive on KRCL. We've been listening to grassroots reporting from around the region, thanks to the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. KRCL is joining the longstanding nonprofit group, and a few of us staffers will be attending the annual conference in Grand Junction next month. Learn more at RockyMountainCommunityRadio.org. Coming up on Radioactive tomorrow, Friday, October 7th, is Punk Rock Farmer Friday, featuring fresh, homegrown music from Saldor and more true tales from the agrihood with Aldine, KRCL's Punk Rock Farmer, and Root Awakening's Liz Schulte. On Monday, October 10th, Living the Circle of Life takes over the show for a special Indigenous Peoples Day program hosted by Valine MC and Dave John. Don't forget to support Radioactive and KRCL during our fall Radiothon starting October 14th, or get your membership squared away right now at krcl.org. Don't wait. Click donate. I'm the new guy around here, Gavin Dahl, general manager at KRCL. You can reach me by emailing gavind at krcl.org. Thanks for joining me and stay tuned.